Our God and our Heavenly Father, as we come into your presence this morning, we need to acknowledge with deep humility that our sins are many. But you have lavished your kindness on us. You have been merciful to us, gracious. And, and that mercy and that kindness has forgiven our sins, has cleansed us from our sins. And so, as we come into your presence this morning, we acknowledge your greatness. We ask that you would speak to us through your word, open our hearts. Father, may the Holy Spirit give us understanding. And we ask that you would speak to us this morning, that your word would meet the need of every heart that is here. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So for those of you who have been coming uh, to Family Bible Hour, you know that since the start of this year, we have been going through the Gospel of John. And this Gospel documents the selection and training of Jesus' disciples, 12 in particular, but there were more. It also records Jesus' interactions with a number of diverse individuals. So, for example, we've read in chapter 3 about an encounter that the Lord Jesus has, where, where there's a very deep theological conversation between the Lord Jesus and a man, uh, a Jewish rabbi named Nicodemus. Uh, chapter 4 records a conversation between the Lord Jesus and a Samaritan woman that really focuses on the topics of worship and the identity of the Messiah. And then the latter part of chapter 4, which we considered a Jewish official from Cana, sorry, from Capernaum, finds Jesus in Cana and asks him to come and heal his son, who was in Capernaum at the time. Now, the outcomes of each of these interactions is also uh, quite diverse. Um, Nicodemus asks lots of questions. He has lots of objections. But in the end, he leaves somewhat confused and uncommitted. The Samaritan woman is absolutely convinced that the Lord Jesus is the Messiah, and her enthusiastic witness results in many Samaritans coming to faith in the Lord Jesus. And then, latter part of chapter 4, this Jewish official goes home and finds that at the very time that he was speaking to the Lord Jesus, his son was healed remotely, and he comes to faith and his entire family is saved. Now, although each interaction is quite different, there is a common thread in that each encounter is intentional. Uh, they were meant to teach and train the disciples, and John the Apostle records them in the gospel because they're very instructional for future disciples, like you and me. Uh, today, we're going to look a Jesus interaction with a disabled man. And this is recorded for us in John chapter 5, so I would encourage you to turn there to John chapter 5. We're going to see some similarities between this encounter in John chapter 5 and the encounters in chapters 3 and 4. But we're also going to see some very striking differences as well. Now this interaction has really one of the saddest outcomes of any in this gospel or any of, the, any of the gospels. Okay, so let's go ahead and read John chapter 5. Okay, 
After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these, a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there already a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. So the narrative begins by telling us that Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast. Okay, so Bible.org, the website Bible.org, tells us that Jews were obligated, that is Jewish men, were obligated to go up to Jerusalem for three major annual feasts. And they were Passover, or the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then Pentecost, which was also called the Feast of First Fruits, and then Tabernacles. Now Jesus, as we know, was was a very good Jew who faithfully followed the law, so you can be sure that he was there in Jerusalem uh, for those three major feasts. If we read in Luke chapter 2, we read that at the age of 12, he went up to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover, and that it was his family's custom, customary practice, to go to Jerusalem every year for the major feasts. So by this time, he was about 30. So if you do simple math, I'm not going to do public math, but roughly speaking, he had probably been to Jerusalem for the major feasts at least 50 times, maybe more, if he had gone for all three, which I believe he did. So the other piece of information that we have is in John chapter 2, we're told that he was already in Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. So if you put all that together... What that means is this feast is probably Pentecost or First Fruits. That was the next feast in chronological order, and that feast took place at the beginning of the harvest. Tabernacles took place at the end of the harvest. Okay, so just keep that in your mind. We'll come back to this a little bit later. So having set the context in terms of time, now the Apostle John proceeds to talk to us a little bit about the location. And specifically the location is this pool called... Bethesda. Now, Bethesda means house of kindness. And if we read on in this passage, it becomes pretty clear how this pool got that name. There were five porches that surrounded the pool. And as we read here, there were a number of of disabled folks, um, blind, lame, paralyzed, that kind of lay around the pool. Now, the New King James adds this in verse 4. If you notice in ESV, there's a verse 4 missing. New King James adds this, For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now the English Standard Version and the New American Standard Bible leave out that verse because it isn't in any of the earliest manuscripts. That verse was probably added later to give some commentary or an explanation of why these disabled folks were lying around this pool. 
The other reason why it's, it's probably not in the ESV or NASB is that it's considered folklore. There's no validation that this thing was actually happening, right? So that kind of gets us the context, the location. So Jesus is going to interact with one specific individual in that multitude of disabled folks. And we're only given two pieces of information about this man. We're told that he had been disabled for 38 years and that he had been at this pool for a really long time. Now, there's probably all kinds of additional details that we would love to know. What exactly was his disability? How did he get into that condition? We can reason that he wasn't disabled since birth. If you were to read in John chapter 9, where Jesus heals a man that that was blind, uh, we're told very explicitly, this man had been blind since birth. So if it wasn't since birth, you know, was it an illness? Uh, Was it an accident? Uh, What happened? How did this man care for himself? Did somebody else care for him? All these kinds of details we are not told. And I think that's because the disciples probably don't have any interaction with him after this encounter. So they don't have an opportunity to follow up and get more details. Now verse 6, go ahead and look at verse 6. It says that Jesus knew that he had been there at the pool for a very long time. How did Jesus know that? Well, certainly, of course, you can say Jesus is God and knows everything, and so he would have known. But here's my thinking, okay? And this is not necessarily confirmed by Scripture, but I think it's reasonable. If Jesus had been coming up to Jerusalem year after year, it's more than likely that he actually saw this man. Perhaps not on one occasion, perhaps on several occasions. So he knows this man is here. He's seen him before. Now there's a similarity here, I hope you've noticed, between the episode in chapter 4, right? Um, and the, with the woman uh, at the well in Samaria. Jesus is taking the initiative to initiate the, this encounter. Now, if we read on in the Gospels, we'll see that much of of the Lord Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem focused around the temple, either within the temple or or just in the surroundings of the temple. Um, But the Lord Jesus intentionally goes to this pool, Bethesda, to engage this man because this man couldn't come to the temple. Now, the obstacle was not necessarily his physical disability, He could probably have found some way to get to the temple if he wanted to get there. I think the major obstacle was the social and religious stigma associated with this sickness. Most Jewish theologians made a strong connection or correlation between sickness and sin. So even if this man could somehow have managed to get to the temple he would probably have encountered all kinds of opposition and objections to actually going into the temple. Okay. So really, this, this man was, um, he was cut off from participation in religious life, probably in social life. You know, he, in some ways, had a lot of similarity with this woman in Samaria. He would have been despised 
and, and held in very low regard by the Jews. He would not have been welcome into their company. I think there's a message in this, in the, in the initiative that the Lord Jesus is taking, and I hope it's encouraging to each and every one of us, God doesn't wait for us to come to him, right? God comes to us. God finds us where we are and how we are and begins to engage. Now, that's a very enc- encouraging thing. Okay, so the Lord Jesus begins this encounter with a question, right? Similar to the, in, in Samaria, right? Would you give me a drink? Here he in, starts the question with a question. Do you want do you want to be healed? This seems like really an unnecessary, maybe on the verge of being insensitive, doesn't it? I mean, the man is disabled. He's been lying at this pool for an extended period of time, waiting for that opportunity. Isn't it obvious that he wants to be healed? But I think if we dig a little bit deeper we come to see that this may really be an offer that the Lord Jesus is making, right? I think what he's asking here is, do you want me to heal you? And I think what we'll see is if we, as we continue studying this passage is that it, there's even a deeper layer, a deeper intention or a deeper layer of meaning in this question. But we'll get to that in a little bit. Now look at verse 7. Verse 7 is the man's reply. He says this, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. So, he hasn't been healed yet because he hasn't managed to get to the pool. He doesn't have somebody to help him get into the pool. Right? He's too slow. Right? Now, this seems like a pretty lame excuse. You'll excuse the pun. I'm sure that there was someone right? Family member, friend, somebody who could take a couple of days off to help him in this predicament, right? So why does he offer this excuse in the first place? Well, most likely, the man misunderstood what the Lord Jesus says, and he's thinking that the Lord Jesus is challenging his sincerity, his commitment, right? Um, You know, sometimes we misunderstand what God wants to do for us and in us because we don't know his heart. You know, we look at our faults, we look at our failures, and we think, you know, God is disappointed in us. Or, you know, if we're stuck in the same place, we may think that God has abandoned us or maybe is going to abandon us. You know, if we really knew the heart of God, we wouldn't think that way. But notice what Jesus does here. He doesn't challenge the man's excuse. He doesn't try to clarify or explain the offer. He just simply gives him a command. Right? Get up, take up your mat, and walk. Now, the wonderful thing about a command is that it really removes ambiguity, doesn't it? This man really only had two choices. He could obey, right, exercise faith, get up, or he could reject the command and remain disabled. Now, wisely, 
He chooses to obey and he's instantly healed. So the man obviously has faith. He believes in God. He believes in miracles. Um, If he did not, he wouldn't have been healed. But what he does next is quite surprising. And it's unexpected. And in order to kind of sh- show you that, let's, let's turn over to Acts chapter 3. Okay, we're going to read a passage from Acts chapter 3. This should be familiar to most of us. Acts chapter 3, starting in at verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God, and all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as one who's, the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So, So this man in Acts chapter 3 was profoundly impacted by this miracle that he has just experienced. He had no reservation about giving glory to God, about sharing with others, anyone who was willing to listen, what had just happened to him. Now, this disabled man in John chapter 5, I mean, he didn't need to make a scene, but you would have expected some joy, some thankfulness, you know, something, right? But what we see is just, it's just apathy. He just gets up and walks away. So you might ask, why does the Lord Jesus heal this man? Why does the Apostle John take up such precious space in his gospel to, to record this account, to record this episode? So Bible.org says this, Many of Jesus' miracles were not done primarily for the individual, but for those who were watching, and that could have included the disciples, Jewish authorities, the crowd. Uh, It goes on to say that the gospel selects certain miracles to clearly reveal who Jesus was. These events are representative of his daily actions. They are selected to show his person, his compassion, his power, his authority, his clear revelation of the Father, and his clear revelation of the Messianic Age. Now, if we were to go later on in this chapter, we would see that this healing sort of initiates an exchange with the Jews that gives them and us some amazing insights into the identity and character of the Lord Jesus. So there are definitely benefits. There's definitely some very positive things that come out of this encounter. But as far as this man is concerned, this disabled man, the outcome is really 
you know, quite sad. The apathy that we see indicates that experiencing this really dramatic change in his life, in his lifestyle, had very little impact on his heart. I think it was a warning to the disciples, a warning to us as well, against assuming that just because somebody experiences the grace of God, even perhaps a miracle, that in some way it guarantees or assures salvation. One of the things we see is that's not necessarily the case. Right? This man's heart was hard before the miracle, and it remained hard after the miracle. He had just encountered God manifested in the flesh, the one who had the power to give him eternal life, and he just walked away. Now, this isn't Jesus' only encounter with this man. He finds him later on, and he says these words to him, See, you are well, sin no more, so that nothing worse happens to you. So what is Jesus saying there? Is he saying that there is some sort of a connection between sickness and sin? And what could be worse than being disabled for 38 years? So I don't think that Jesus is is making a connection between sickness and sin. If, If you read other passages, right? For example, John chapter 9, you'll see that Jesus does not believe in a correlation or a connection between sickness and sin. In John chapter 9, the disciples asked the Lord, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents that he was born blind? So they obviously believed in that philosophy as well. Jesus responds, neither this man sinned nor his parents, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So the real message here is that sickness, or sorry, sin, is a much bigger deal than sickness, than physical disability or illness. This man's disability had kept him from engaging in work, in, in social life, in religious life. You know, for years, his only concern was about his physical condition. His entire focus, his aim, his objective was on obtaining physical healing. But the physical disability was not his biggest problem. It really masked an even greater issue. This man's heart, he had a heart problem. His heart was not right with God. It was really totally focused on himself, his goals and his desires. Now, With just one command, the Lord Jesus removed this disability and at the same time uncovered the bigger issue. And the wonderful outcome of this encounter would have been if his focus shifted from himself to the Lord Jesus. If he began to think, you know, who is this man who has the power to heal me? And why did he heal me? Why did he come specifically to me and heal me? But that never happens. You know, take another look at verse, cha- uh, verse 6 of this chapter. You know, other versions translate verse 6 in this way. Do you want to be made well or do you want to be made whole? Now, wellness is more than just freedom from disability or pain. Wellness is about being healthy spiritually, physically, and mentally. 
It springs from a right relationship with our Creator. You know, it doesn't matter if we're physically and mentally healthy if we are spiritually dead, right? If we're not enjoying a relationship with God, if we're not connecting with God, we are not well. I think that's the message of this, this encounter. You know, the wellness or healing that, that the Lord Jesus offered to this man was more than just addressing his physical condition. In fact, the physical healing was just to convince this man that Jesus had the authority, had the power to give spiritual healing, spiritual wellness. Sadly, this man stopped at the physical healing and he walked away. He didn't understand uh, the greater offer that the Lord Jesus was making. You know, it's interesting that the Holy Spirit prompts John the Apostle to record this incident occurred during the Feast of First Fruits, or Pentecost. And I think there's a really a, a definite reason, okay? There's something that, the, that he wants to communicate. You know, there's two sides to First Fruits. On the one hand, First Fruits is a promise of a greater harvest that is to come. But the second aspect, the other aspect of First Fruits is that much of the fruit is not yet ripe not ready for harvest. And that was the condition of this man. He was not ripe. He was not ready. Possibly he got ready later on, but we don't have any indication of that. And it was good instruction for the, for the apostles and for us as well, is don't be surprised if someone who experiences an amazing work of God, God doing wonderful things, but still walks away without his heart or her heart being changed. That happened with this man, that can happen with others. So I was in my second year of college when I became a Christian. I actually considered myself to be a Christian when I entered college. I'd heard, I'd been interacting with Christians and reading the Bible and stuff in, in high school. But you know, when I went into college, my entire focus was on academics, on fun, on various other things. Um, you know, prayer, when it happened, was pretty much about asking God to give me the things that I wanted, not about finding out what He wanted. Right? Now, God graciously used true disciples to convict me of my selfishness and sin and to confront me with the consequences of that sin. You know, the more I read the Bible, the more I interacted with true believers, the more I was convinced that I was not at all a Christian. You know, outwardly, I may have been going through the motions, um, but my motivations, I could see my motivations, my thoughts, my actions were all sinful. And I knew from, from listening to messages that God is holy and separate from sin. And so... I thought, if I want to be a real Christian, I have to stop sinning, just like this man. I have to stop sinning. And I tried as hard as I could. You know, perhaps you've been in that situation. You've tried, right? And I failed. I didn't have what it takes to stop sinning. It was at that time, God brought me to a desperate place, and I realized... And that was really when I heard and, and began to understand the gospel. It began to sink in. No, being a Christian is not about being good. If you've been you know, disabused with that concept, right, 
you need to let, leave that behind. It's not about being good. It's about admitting that you are a sinner and receiving God's gift of spiritual healing. He wants to heal us spiritually. And we need to be able to receive it. Right, it's about passing from spiritual death to spiritual life. The Bible says that we are spiritually dead. It's our initial condition. And forgiveness and cleansing from sin, it's not something that's accomplished by human effort. It's received by grace you know, through faith. So looking at this man, this disabled man in John chapter 5, lying there by the pool in Bethesda, we might think less of this man because he grossly mis. He grossly underestimated, misunderstood and, um, misunderstood and underestimated the offer that the Lord Jesus was making. Okay? But if we're honest, we've done the same. Right? How much energy is expended on finances, on success, on health? How much prayer is about material blessing, physical healing? Things that are temporary at best. On the other hand, how much time do we spend sorrowing for the sin that is in us and all around us? The sin that grieves God's heart. How much effort do we expend praying and asking God to give us a heart that is truly receptive to and appreciative of the grace that he has shown us, the mercy that he has shown us? How much time do we spend praying and asking God to give spiritual healing to others that we know? Uh, how much focus is there on getting to know the Lord Jesus better and, and sharing him with others? Now, these are all aspects of being well, of wellness. You know, it's possible this morning that, that the Lord Jesus is asking you and me that same question that he asked this man. Right? Do you want to be made well? well? Let's take him up on his offer. Let's pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we do want to be well. We want to be spiritually whole. Father, we're thankful for the grace, the mercy that you have shown us uh, in so many different ways, the blessings that you give. But let us not overlook the greatest blessing, the blessing of knowing you, the blessing of day by day walking with you, the day by day reflecting you to others. Father, we're thankful for your word. Uh, may it challenge us, may it convict us. Lord, show each and every one of us where, uh, not that you criticize us, but you, you want us to do better. You want us to be whole. And show us how we can get there, Father. For your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.